When we began the book of Luke, we saw at the beginning, he says he was writing these things that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke is writing to those who are already believers who have heard of the gospel and have believed, but he's saying, now I'm gonna go back and get all the facts together, put them together and make one comprehensive gospel. So this is why Luke is composed of uh, many uh, pieces of Mark and Matthew as well, because Luke is saying, many people have already written this down. I'm gonna try and get it all together. And he also interviewed eyewitnesses, interviewed those who had been there because Luke himself had not. And we're gonna probably encounter some of those eyewitness accounts this week. So uh, that's what the purpose of the book was. And we learned also, we, we took a little time to figure out and understand what had been going on in between the Testaments. So Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, the people are back in the land, book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, pick up with Israel in their land under Roman rule. So we left them under Persian rule and now they're under Roman rule. In between, the Greeks overthrew the Persians and then when the Greek empire split up into four different pieces, Israel was kind of tossed back and forth between the different dynasties. Eventually, and it's a very interesting story, but we're just gonna skip over it. They cast off the Greek uh, rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. They set up what was called the Hasmonean dynasty, which these were priests who were also serving as kings for 75 years. And those were very turbulent times. There was a lot of corruption that came in. There was an alliance they had made with Rome in order to cast off Greece. But then when Rome saw that Israel was fracturing and fighting, they began to curry favor with all of these other cities and territories that Israel controlled in order to take over Judea, as they called it, because Israel is such a strategic place, hugging the Mediterranean coastline and opening up the gateway to Africa and down into the Arabian Peninsula. So everybody wanted a piece of it. So now now Rome is in charge and the and the king of Israel is a man named Herod whose father was a court attendant who had sold the people out in order to become king and he was a descendant of Esau no less so that's a further insult to the descendants of Jacob right and uh, so things are tough they're tight politically and, and socially and we, we open up on a scene where there's a man named Zechariah who's serving as a priest in the temple and he sees an angel and the angel lets him know, Zachariah, you, although you and your wife are old, are going to have a child. You're gonna name him John and he's gonna be the forerunner of the Messiah. And the Messiah, of course, being the one who would uh, fulfill all of the promises made to Israel. We're gonna talk about some of that today. Zechariah didn't really believe the angel, sort of demanded proof. An angel says, I'll give you proof. And he struck him dumb so that he couldn't speak. It's also possible that he struck him deaf. The language can go both ways. But he goes home, his wife Elizabeth becomes pregnant. We saw the other story of a young maiden named Mary from Nazareth who was visited by the same angel who promised that she was going to have a son as well and his name would be Jesus. So the forerunner of the Messiah and the Messiah. And the miracle for Mary is not that she was old, but that she was a virgin. She was unmarried and she had not been with a man, but the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and uh, the incarnation would take place of Jesus Christ. So with the backdrop of all that terrible stuff going on, we begin the book of Luke with, all right, things are happening now. God's on the move, the spirit is moving again, the angels are speaking to the people again. And uh, it reminded me what we're gonna talk about today and the attitude they must have, have, must have had. Psalm 32 verse seven says, you are a hiding place for me, you preserve me from trouble, you surround me with songs of deliverance. 
We sang that this morning, right? I'm surrounded by songs of deliverance. Um, and this week, that's our title, we're, we're gonna see two songs about the deliverance of the Lord, one from Mary and one from Zechariah. And you can see as you go through this that there, there were definite national, political, material hopes that were being expressed in these songs. It wasn't just that, but there was a lot of that. And they were not wrong to have that. But as we read through the gospel, you're gonna see people expected Jesus to be a political figure. They expected him to come in and get rid of Rome. They tried to make him king one time. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, what the Lord was doing was different than what the people were expecting. And we're gonna see how even though they were singing songs about, Lord, you're gonna come and redeem Israel, there was something bigger than that going on. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and the Lord begins to do things in our life. We should expect to see songs of praise coming out of our hearts. You know, it directs our thoughts and our gaze heavenward. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes your eyes off of the situation and puts it on the Savior. He takes it off of all the stuff going on around you and makes you look to Jesus. And the reason we have to do that is because we can set the plans for God. Tell God, this is the problem and this is the solution that we need. Now get on it. <laughs> and the Lord's like, listen, I see the problem, but my solution is not the same as yours because I see it more clearly than you do. His solutions are always higher than ours. And we're living in days, I think, where there is a lot of pressure to look for physical or even political deliverance from the Lord, or even to go out and work it out ourselves and go and, and fix things ourselves. But the Lord is still calling us to put your eyes on the Lord and wait for his strength and his timing because his solutions are not always gonna be what ours are. So when we sing those songs of deliverance, we need to remember where deliverance comes from and trust the Lord. So let's start at verse 39 and we're gonna read down to verse 45. So remember the last thing we saw was Mary had been visited by the angel Gabriel. He told her she was gonna have a child even in her virginity. She said, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. She believed the angel. And he also told her, and if you want further proof, Mary, uh, your kinswoman Elizabeth is pregnant too, even though she's barren and she's an old woman. So in verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country. Because remember, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they did not live in Jerusalem as priests every, every day, right? You would serve for a week, twice a year. If you were a Levite, you would go and serve in the temple or if you were a priest, which he was. So they lived in the hill country to a town in Judah and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that would be John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So, Mary has been told your kinswoman Elizabeth is also going to have a baby and Mary says I'm going to go visit Elizabeth because <laughs> who who are you going to tell about this think of yourself in Mary's situation you're, you're going to go and tell even your mother or your father or your fiance and say just so you know I'm going to have a baby but it's okay because it's from God no, no one's going to believe you people are going to think very poorly of you and they did think poorly of Mary we're going to see this as we go through the story so she goes to see Elizabeth 
She goes from Nazareth up in the north, which was up in Galilee, down into the hill country. I'm not sure exactly where that is. It's very nonspecific. This is likely the foothills surrounding Jerusalem. Um, the, traditionally, the site is a place called Ein Karim, which is uh, in Israel, of course. But uh, we don't know for sure, that, but that's traditionally where it was. Now, when Elizabeth hears the voice of Mary, so I don't know if Mary hollered when she was outside, you know, or if she just honked the horn and said, Elizabeth, I'm here. But when she heard her voice, the baby leapt within her. Now, I've never been pregnant. I have no plans to be. Uh, but I, that's the kind of thing at six months that a woman would take notice of. <laughs> when the baby leaps for joy in the womb. And Elizabeth, rather than thinking, man, what is wrong with this crazy child? She's filled with the Holy Spirit. She has no prior knowledge of Mary's situation. I doubt Mary opened the conversation with exactly what had happened, right? It's just, shalom, Elizabeth. And then, whoa, Mary. And then the Holy Spirit gives her insight and knowledge to the situation. And she prophesies to her. Now, this is important to notice. You should, if you'd like to underline a highlight in your Bible, or at least make note of it, she was filled, verse 41, with the Holy Spirit. We saw from verse 15 of this chapter, the Holy Spirit was already upon John the Baptist as a baby in the womb. Can the Holy Spirit fill a fetus? Apparently so, because it's exactly what happened. And in the Spirit, little baby John knew that Mary and Jesus were coming. And also, by the way, and I'm not going to get off on this, there is some implications here about uh, little babies in the womb that apparently the Lord thinks that these are, these are children, these are full people, and not only are they people, but the Lord can fill them with this Holy Spirit, even in the womb. So uh, we should be very protective of those who wanna do harm to, to the little babies. So I'm not gonna get off in that, but this is important for us to notice that uh, he's a character in the story, even though he's still, is yet to be born. Now, we're talking about the Holy Spirit here. The books written by Luke, Luke and Acts, are filled no pun intended, with references to the Holy Spirit. We've already seen this twice, then in verse 15 of chapter one, and then down in verse 35, talking about the Holy Spirit. And then now in verse 41, the Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth. The life of Christ and the life of the church are both empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit. This is key, and we're gonna hit this over and over and over again as we go through this. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody for a certain time or for a certain task. And it was not a, a continual uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, David would write in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why? Because Saul, the former king, had been filled with the Spirit, but had quenched the Spirit and the Spirit had departed from him. We talk about how Samson had the Spirit of God depart from him because it was for a specific time or task and the Lord would remove his presence and his power from people who were faithless to him. But what we're seeing in the book of Luke here, as all these references to the Holy Spirit are clustered together, it's anticipating what was gonna happen in the book of Acts. And it's what was prophesied by Joel. In Joel chapter two, verses 28 and 29, the Lord said, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. To be filled with the spirit, to have the spirit upon you in the Old Testament was a very special thing. You thought of men like Elijah, Right? You thought of Moses, you thought of David, you thought of important people that God used. But now the Lord is saying, I'm gonna do that for everyone. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the whole church. And one of the, one of the main points that Peter makes in his sermon to these unbelievers is, if you will come and be saved, you will be filled with the Spirit as well. And the book of Acts makes this a key part of the life of the church, that to be a Christian is to be empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter eight that we are sealed with the Spirit and that's, if, if you're not filled with the Spirit, you don't belong to the Lord. That the Holy Spirit comes in and seals our salvation, but then we also see in the, in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament that there are moments where the Spirit would come upon somebody and rush upon them and empower them for a specific task or moment, but there's that constant indwelling presence that is always there. So that's just a brief overview of what we're going to see, but uh, I, I wanted to point that out. Every time in the book of Luke you see a reference to the Holy Spirit, just mark it, mark it, because you're gonna be a lot of those. And then when we get to the book of Acts, there's really gonna be a lot of those. So uh, something to be keeping your eye on. And I love this because the Holy Spirit, again, was thought to be someone who came upon people of importance, right? You, you came upon kings and prophets and, and men and women who were a cut above everybody else. But here we see a bunch of nobodies and the Spirit is at work in their midst by the world standards, right? Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were a priestly family, but they were of no repute. They were of no uh, importance but the Holy Spirit comes upon. They're up in the hills, they're hillbillies, right? <laughs> they're in the hill country. And we're gonna see in, in a couple verses here, they're gonna be acting just like hillbillies when the baby's born, it's hilarious. But, you know, and then Mary is here. Mary is, is a, a young woman, right? Remember probably in her early teenage years, she's from a bad part of town in a, in a backwater of the country, but the Holy Spirit is at work here. And this is what's so cool because the Lord is, is showing that as Mary's gonna say in a few verses that he does not distinguish between people like we distinguish between people. Now Elizabeth's blessing here in verse 42, blessed are you among women and, and so on. There, this could be structured like a poem or song. Some people think that this is the first song and then Mary's is the second and Zacharias is the third. It's less clear, uh, the poetry is less obvious so that could be but um, uh, it might not be. And it says that she gave a loud cry, which is the Greek word krauge, which implies like a declaration, like that she's giving a strong prophetic word here. And she ascribes to Mary the highest honor among women. Blessed are you among women. What does that mean? It means of all the women in the world, you're the most blessed. Why? Because you get to be the mother of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. And what's so cool about Elizabeth too is she, she humbles herself in this moment, right? She doesn't try and one-up Mary. Like, oh yeah, you, you're having a miracle child? Yeah, so am I, whatever, you know, I'm used to it now. <laughs> but she says, what, what, verse 43, why is this granted to me? What did I do that I deserve to have a meeting with you, Mary? And I love that because, right, love does not envy. Love is, is excited for other people and she's excited for her. And I, I said this last week and I'm gonna, I'll say it again, Mary is to be admired. Mary was the one, of all women that the Lord chose to raise his child. Consider that. He chose her to raise his child. And obviously it was the grace of God that was poured out on her, but the Lord was, was I said it last week, but I'll say it again, was impressed enough with her at this young age to choose her and say she's gonna be the one 
to give birth to the Messiah. The Lord was waiting for this perfect moment, and here she was. So uh, worship belongs to the fruit of her womb, but admiration and learning from the example of Mary, we absolutely should do that. So that's what Elizabeth does here. And why is she blessed? She says in verse 45, because she believed. Verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The great contrast between Mary and Zechariah in these two stories is faith. Mary believed, Zechariah doubted. Zechariah didn't just doubt, by the way. He challenged an angel. That, I can't get over that. <laughs> that you know, he, he's in, in the, the holy temple with the incense burning and there's an angel right there and you know, your wife is gonna have a kid and he's like, yeah, I don't know about that. So I, I, he'd just been, he'd been filled with terror five minutes ago and then now he's fighting with it. So maybe he was just a really grumpy old man and even angels didn't impress him. But uh, the Lord chastised him for that. But Mary believed, and this is the, what they're drawing attention to, that Mary was, is blessed by the Lord because she believed. She had no idea how this was gonna happen, right? She had kept herself virtuous until this day, but the Lord is like, I'm gonna handle it. She goes, okay, I believe you. I believe you, Lord. And that is the defining characteristic of those who are acceptable before God, those who believe. Not those who do all the right things, but those who believe. You can do a lot of right things and think somehow that that's gonna gain you salvation, right? I pray more than anybody else. I tithe more than anybody else. I go to church, I do this, whatever. All good things, but it's not gonna make you any closer to God than if you were a dirty, rotten sinner. And that kind of makes us frustrated. It's like, come on, man, I'm doing all this stuff. I don't get any credit for that. No, the Lord is pleased by it, but you are saved by grace and grace alone. It's only by the work of Jesus Christ. It's only by the cross. It's only believing in the Lord. And that belief, of course, should lead to obedience. And if it doesn't lead to obedience, it's not real belief, is it? But Hebrews 11 verse six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he is, and that he rewards those who seek him. And Mary has her faith affirmed. This is something that God often does. When we take God at his word and we don't demand to be shown proof, God will often bring the proof along as a blessing and as a reward. You know, Mary believed, she didn't ask for a sign, but the Lord gave her one. He sends her to, to Elizabeth who prophesies, tells her something, there's no way Elizabeth could possibly have known this. And she affirms and blesses her in the name of the Lord. And uh, can you imagine the relief that Mary must have felt here? <laughs> she's, she's traveling down. This was a, a journey of about 80 to 100 miles, three or four days to get to where uh, Elizabeth was probably. And that whole way, you know she's gotta be just freaking out <laughs> and stressing out and kind of like, Lord, what's gonna happen? I don't know, that was weird. Did that really happen? You know, wakes up the next day, is this real? I don't know. And then she gets to see Elizabeth and she's like, how am I even gonna bring this up? I haven't seen her in forever. There's no indication that they were close relatives. They were just related to each other. And she shows up and she's like, hello, uh, Auntie Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, oh! she goes, Mary, blessed are you among women for blessed is the fruit of your womb. And Mary's like, how did you know that? there was fruit of my womb because I'm, I'm just a kid, right? But the Lord blesses her in that kid. And this is, this is what God does. When we take the Lord on faith, he meets us and he rewards us for our faith. So that's the greatest example that we learn from Mary. There are many things that we can learn from her, but one of them is that she believed. And then in verse 46, we're gonna get her reaction to this, her reaction, her, the meditations of her heart on this. Um, 
These verses, verses 46 through 56, are known as the Magnificat, this, this poem here. And it's called that because that's the first word of the Latin translation of this passage. So she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. In Latin, that is Magnificat anima mea dominum. So Magnificat, the first word becomes the title. Um, couple things. There's no need to assume that Mary said this spontaneously, right? We don't need to assume that as soon as Elizabeth said this, Mary spouted out this beautiful uh, hymn. It is entirely possible, and I think it's pretty obvious that these were the, the, the reflections on, on these things that, that, remember it says she pondered it in her heart? Apparently she pondered and she thought things out through poetry and through writing things down, and she wrote this psalm of praise. And uh, this symbolizes and this encapsulates all the thoughts and all the rejoicing that was in her heart at this moment. And what's so cool about this is, you know, where did Luke get this? He probably got it from her. I can imagine Mary's probably older at this time and Luke is interviewing her and asking, what did you think? What was going on in your head at this time? And she goes, well, you know what? I'm sure I've got this somewhere. And she opens up, you know, the drawers and the folders. She goes, here it is. I wrote this, I wrote this, 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 pretty much covers everything that I thought. And Luke's like, can I take this? Can I keep this and put it in the Bible? And he did. So it's, it's really cool to see that, that we have, we have the words and the writing of Mary in the Bible. It's pretty radical, it's pretty cool to see. Um, both this song and the one that we're gonna read in a few minutes about Zechariah, they are, they bear strong marks of translation. It's kind of hard to see this in the English, but when you looking at the Greek, it reads like Greek that was translated from Hebrew or possibly Aramaic, which is adds to the legitimacy of, of this book that Luke didn't just make something up, but he's translating it. Um, you know, you're, you're gonna see a lot of phrases that are common to the Old Testament um, and, and the phrasing and the way that the word order is, is written is very similar to that. So very, very cool. And I guess you could say the theme of the Magnificat is the reversal of the world's fortunes and expectations. How the lowly are raised up and the haughty are brought low. It's very similar to Hannah's song from 1 Samuel chapter 2 when Samuel was in the temple and Eli told her that she was going to have a son uh, and she wrote a song very similar to that in a lot of ways. So let's read it. Verse 46 down through verse 56. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's pause there. So I'm gonna back up and we're gonna take this one little section at a time. Uh, starting verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. Magnify, right, means to make bigger, right? So my soul wants to make the name of God great. And if you wanna know what it means to magnify, you know, think of, we're in here singing songs and there's folks out in the lobby that are wondering what we're singing about and they notice that we're singing about God and it's like, wow, they're, that's pretty cool. People are there worshiping, what God is this? Are these are Christians, this is the name of Jesus. You're making the name of God great. You're making the name of Jesus known and heard. So the, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
servant, that word is the same one as, as uh, when she said in verse 38, I am the servant or the handmaiden of the Lord. It's the Greek word doule, which means female slave, okay? For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So this section of the Magnificat, Mary is talking specifically of God's grace towards herself. And it's gonna go herself, the whole world, and the nation of Israel. But this is about her. She magnifies the Lord and she's pointing out her lowliness, right? The humble estate of his servant. Then in Greek, humble estate is tapenosis and it means lowliness, like being down low to the ground, like crawling in the dirt. Like he looked at me even though I was nobody, I was lowly. And it's also the second time that we see a derivative of the Greek word agaliasis, which is that word rejoice. The angel told Zechariah, there will be great gladness at the birth of your son. And th this word is used over and over again. Uh, Zach, uh, John the Baptist leaped for joy, same word, in the womb of Elizabeth. And now Mary is saying that she rejoices. And we're gonna see that the people that celebrated the birth of John had great joy. It's the same phrase and word used over and over again. So like all of this section is characterized by joy and celebration. Um, which is pretty cool. I mean, both of these things we're reading, these songs, they're celebrations. And that's what worship should be. Worship is a celebration of what the Lord has done. You know, it doesn't always have to be sad and morose and contemplative, you know, and sometimes those are the most emotional moments, but sometimes we should learn to discipline ourselves to celebrate in the presence of the Lord. Even when things are going bad, maybe even especially when things are going bad, that we celebrate and give thanks to the Lord for what he's done. Yeah, I love that verse 49. He who is mighty has done great things for me. All generations will call me blessed for that reason. And again, look, Mary is saying, there's nothing about me that causes me to be blessed. I am called blessed, and she is, right? Because the Lord has done great things for her. Right, and I, this is what Mary constantly does. She's deflecting glory away from herself onto the Lord and onto her son, Jesus. Verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Same word for lowliness there. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So God's work for the whole world towards those who fear him. Right? If you fear the Lord, he's your advocate. He is your strong defense. And this is interesting because now we're, we're getting into some passages with social implications. She's talking about how the poor will have victory over the rich and so on. Right? That the proud will be scattered and the mighty will be brought down and the hungry will be filled, but the rich will be sent away. This is kind of the pattern we see of God in the Bible, isn't it? Is the Lord is the advocate for those who are lowly. Even the nation of Israel, the, the whole covenant began with God setting a bunch of slaves free. And all the way down through the Old Testament, the Lord is the one on the side of the oppressed and the downtrodden, right? He is near to the brokenhearted. And this is what Jesus is coming to do. He's coming to advocate for the lepers and for the lame and for the, the sinful and the ones who have gone astray. Um, and Jesus is even gonna say in Mark 10, 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever tried to fit a camel through the eye of a needle? <laughs> There's no strategy to it. It's not gonna happen. 
Now, why is this? This is interesting. Because I think of our our political disposition, we can have an automatic opinion on this, which is not good, right? He's saying we, they brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He filled the hungry and he sent the rich away empty. What's going on? I mean, surely God doesn't hate those who are prosperous. That's one bad way to look at it, right? Where you're automatically on the side of whoever is the loser in the situation as far as you're concerned. And say, yeah, see, God hates the rich and he hates those who are strong and he hates the powerful. No, no. <laughs> Remember Job? Job was like the richest guy in the world and the Lord is bragging about him in heaven, okay? First Timothy 6, 17 says that God gives us all things richly to enjoy, right? So he says, so tell the rich to be free and generous what they have, but to enjoy what they have. What's the problem here? The problem is the attitude that separates the rich and the poor, usually. The rich young ruler, remember he came to Jesus and he says, I've kept all my commandments. What else do I have to do? Jesus said, go sell everything that you have and come and follow me. What's the point? That it's wrong to have possessions? No, of course not. The point is, your wealth has a hold on you, dude. If you can't get rid of this stuff and come and follow me, if you can't give up the thing that matters the most to you, you can't follow me. And the man went away without following Jesus. The real distinction, as Mary draws out, is between those who fear God and those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. That's the big distinction is, you know, the Lord doesn't look on the, on the physical, right? The Lord doesn't regard people according to the flesh like we do, okay? So the Lord looks upon people's hearts. But here's the thing. We are the rich of this world. If you live in the United States of America, you are the rich of this world, which means it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's sobering. You need to think about that. You think, well, I don't have as much as this guy. No, no, it's not how it works. You, you have a place to live. You have food to eat. You're not worried about the water that you're going to drink. You have a car, most likely. You can, if you needed money, you could go out and get a job, like this week if you wanted to. Might not be the one you wanted, but you can get one. We're all clothed. We're all dressed nicely. I'm sure those aren't, that's not your only pair of pants that you have, right? We are wealthy by the world standards, which means we need to be constantly guarding ourselves against that haughtiness that Mary talks about, by being lifted up in the thoughts of your heart that like somehow we're equals with God. And this isn't right for us to do that. And people who have gained and have, have accumulated possessions and things like that, it, especially if you're lifted up over other people, you can start to think a lot of yourself. <laughs> and you think, yeah, I've, I'm, I've done pretty well for myself. And then, look at this. If they would just be more like me, then they could have what I have. And there is a little bit of truth to that, just like there's a little bit of truth to the other side. But... What scripture is, is telling us is we need to guard against that pride. And when we have a lot and we don't feel the need for God in our life as keenly, we're in, we're in danger. When you, start, when you don't feel the pressure on your life of needing God, that's why we're, the Bible talks about how you know, the poor are the ones who are gonna be lifted up because the poor man knows that he needs God, right? A sick man knows that he needs God. A leper knows that he needs a touch from Jesus. The Pharisees don't see why, what the big deal is. And in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus wrote to the church in Laodicea, who, he says, you're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're not good for anything. Cold water, useful. Hot water, useful. Lukewarm water, disgusting. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because he said in Revelation 3.17, because you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Now, if you or I, as those who are wealthy and blessed in the world, can recognize that spiritually we are poor, we are wretched, and come to God, and you come to God with nothing in your hands, and you realize that you as a, as a king have to come to the Lord the same way as a beggar in the street, then the Lord's not gonna hold your, your riches against you. <laughs> you know, the Lord is not gonna say, well, you gotta get rid of your rich stuff first. No, 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 but there is an extra step for those of us who are very well blessed by the Lord, you know? We can show up and start to think that the, that the church exists for our benefit. You know, and if it doesn't have all the, all the things that we need or if it's not doing things the way we want, oh, well, I'm not gonna be treated that way and we lose that humility and that recognition that everything is a blessing. You know, I, I'm sure over in the future I'll get to take some of you guys to Nepal when we start gearing up and doing missions and things like that. You go there or a place like that for a little while, you come to appreciate things really quickly. When you see people that are living in like tin huts, you know, or people that are walking in the streets and there's filth and everything nasty in the street. There's pigs and goats and monkeys jumping around and you know, you start to be grateful and you start to recognize what it means when the Lord says that we are poor in spirit. So be open-handed with what you have, be generous. Don't despise the poor. Don't look down on those who do not have what you have, whether they're deserving or not, by the way. You know, you be wise with what you have, but you know, you look, be pitiful for those people who are don't have what you have. This is the attitude that God wants us to have, to be generous, not just with those who are abroad, but with those who are nearby. Because this, as we're seeing, is what the Lord came to do through Jesus, is to bring the haughty down and to fill the hungry with good things. So, well, number one, recognize that spiritually you are hungry and that you need to be hungry. And number two, in the world that you live in, be generous. It's just stuff. <laughs> it's just stuff. God can give you more stuff. And then verse 54 and 55, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So this is praise on the Lord for his faithfulness to Israel. We're gonna see more of that in Zechariah in his song. Uh, notice that she's saying this word, he remembered, verse 54, his remembrance of his mercy. And then uh, verse 55 of the covenant and the promise that he made with Abraham. And Mary recognizes the song of joy, she's like, all those promises that we've been reading about in the Old Testament are starting to be fulfilled. And she's excited. And we should be excited too. You get to live in the days that they were anticipating. And then verse 56, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So uh, Elizabeth, this would have been either just after Elizabeth had the baby or just before. Uh, I, I say it's probably just before because we don't see her in the next story. And when you consider the circumstances that uh, you know, three months in, Elizabeth is probably saying, honey, you don't want to stay here much longer and then come home and you're showing and people can tell that you're pregnant. So uh, I'm sure that that's what happened here. And it would have been harder the farther along she got for her to travel as well. Uh, so she probably had gone home before the baby was born. And when you consider the neighbors that they had, Elizabeth was probably like, yeah, you don't want to stick around for this because <laughs> they'll figure something out. Let's read verse 57 uh, down to verse 66. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. There's that word again. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. 
And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. All right. So Mary goes home, but we stay here with Elizabeth in the story. And we see the first fulfillment of Gabriel's word. This is the birth of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of the Messiah. And all the neighbors came to see the new baby. Apparently, uh, hillbillies back then were like hillbillies now. Uh, And when something happens that is weird and different, everybody's going to show up. So... uh, That's what was going on. And I'm sure the fact that it was odd and weird that, and you know, Zachariah hadn't been talking for the last nine months either. You know, he's acting like he can't hear either, but you know, I don't know what that's all about. And aren't they a little old to be having babies? Like, oh, I got to see this. And so they all, they all come out and they're, I can see them crowding in, you know, and uh, trying to, you know, take pictures and post it online and all that stuff. Right. And uh, they came for the, for the circumcision, which happened on the eighth day which uh, was what Leviticus chapter 12, verse three had said should happen, that it was on the eighth day that the foreskin should be removed. And this also would have been a day of celebration for the family, right? Zechariah did it right. Zechariah was a priest. He was familiar with the law, so he did it according to the law. Interesting thing though, traditionally, you did not name the child on the day of circumcision. You named him on the day of his birth. So what's interesting here, it says that they would have called him Zechariah. Actually, in, in Greek there, it's just they were calling him Zechariah. So they show up and they're calling the baby Zechariah. Oh, let me see little Zechariah. How is he? And Elizabeth is like, no, 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 right? She, and she, there's an emphatic negation here in Greek. So she uses a double negative, which, you know, that's bad in English to say, you know, I can't never, you know, or something like that. But she says, that's not his name. That is definitely not his name. But they have a problem with that because, well, that's not how we do things out here. You know, you name him after his father. What, you don't like his father? What's wrong with him? This is not right for a woman to be usurping her husband's authority. Zechariah, what are you, hey, hey, you know, they're trying to get his attention and like, baby, what's the baby's name? And, you know, and uh, Zechariah, who still cannot speak and probably cannot hear either. Remember the Greek word that for dumb that they use is kofros, which can also mean deaf. And that also is probably what's going on because, you know, if somebody can hear, you know, it's either he couldn't hear or it's just really insulting. And they're like, uh, what's the baby, the baby? What's his, his name? You know, and he's like, I can hear you. I just can't talk, you know? So one of the two things, but he writes down on a tablet, which would have been a wooden tablet covered in wax and he would have had a stylus and would have written it down. And he speaks in the present tense here. John is his name. They've already named the baby. (laughs) The baby's name is John. Obviously, over these nine months, he had probably made good use of that writing tablet and had communicated the whole story to Elizabeth. They were in agreement with each other. And it was at that moment when he made that public written declaration of faith, God opened up his mouth and his tongue and everybody was astonished. You know, do you think Zachariah might have been disappointed when John was born and he still couldn't talk? (laughs) And then two days go by and then three days go by and five days and a week goes by and the circumcision is the next day and he still can't talk and he still can't hear. But he says his name is John and at that moment, the Lord opened up his mouth. Mary believed the first moment. Zachariah had to learn it. So real quick lesson, be the kind of person who believes God the first time. Don't make God teach you, (laughs) right? 
the Bible says, you know, in the Psalms, don't be like a donkey where you got to put a bit and a bridle in their mouth and you got to pull them to make them go where you want them to go. Jesus told Thomas in John 20, 29, you've believed because you have seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And it says that all the witnesses were filled with fear in verse 65. Why were they afraid? Because all of a sudden they know that God is close. God is no longer abstract up in the heavens doing something. God is doing things in this house that I'm standing in right now. It's a fearful thing to be in the presence of the Lord because God is all powerful and God saw what you were doing yesterday. <laughs> and that's a frightful thing. But it's also a glorious thing too. None of them forgot that day. You see that? They're all talking. It's all they could talk about is who's this boy going to be when he grows up? What was happening? And this is, I, you keep seeing that anticipation in the story that it's got you desiring to go forward. Like, what's going to happen? Because this is, this is crazy stuff. Now, verse 67 says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, there it is again, and prophesied. This is Zechariah's song, which uh, the traditional name is the Benedictus, which comes from the first Latin word of the, of the first line of this song, which is Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel. So Benedictus is the name of this one. Magnificat was the other one. And again, remember, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, which in a way makes Zechariah the last of the prophets of the old dispensation because John's job was to introduce Jesus Christ. Zechariah was the last one before uh, the ministry of Jesus began. And it focuses mostly on God's deliverance of Israel and his faithfulness to the covenant, uh, namely through the Messiah. So let's read this, verse 68, uh, and we're actually gonna get down to verse 75 and we'll pause there. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." So the first section is, is praise to the Lord for raising up what he says, a horn of salvation. What does that mean? Well, uh, a horn was a symbol of strength. You think of a bull or an ox or something with those big old horns, right? And a horn was a symbol of salvation and strength and power. And uh, they, they would wear helmets that had the horns on them because it made you look intimidating and victorious, right? And the Lord was raising up salvation for them through the servant, verse 69, David. So obviously, he's not referring to John here because John the Baptist was not a descendant of David. John was a Levite. He was a descendant of Aaron, like his father and his mother. So he's referring to Jesus, who not only was, Jesus was the son of God, but Mary and his father Joseph were both descendants of David. Uh, through different lines. So Jesus was the son of David he's talking about here. And just as Mary, remember, referenced God, remembering the covenant with Abraham, Zechariah mentions God remembering the covenant with David and the covenant with Abraham. And these are two of the most important things you need to know from the Old Testament. With, with Abraham, this was Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three. The Lord said to him, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the covenant, right? That God is gonna bless the world through Abraham. And the, the covenant 
with David, we talked about last week, was that God was going to perpetuate the throne and the dynasty of David forever and that he would rule over uh, all of Israel. And Zechariah is like, Lord, you are remembering both of those covenants and we're starting to see these fulfillments. Now, again, it kind of has that, uh, that nationalist character to it, right? That you're gonna defend our land and you're gonna get these Romans out of here and you're gonna set up David's throne and we're gonna have the land and the promises that Abraham gave us. That is true. But all of it is with the goal as we see in verse 74 and 75, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah isn't just some you know, pugnacious rebel who wants to get rid of the oppressors. He's saying, Lord, we can't worship you freely. We can't serve you here. We go to the temple and there's a Roman garrison standing at the highest point to make sure that we don't get into trouble. You know, Pontius Pilate, who would be the governor, had tried to bring idols and, and uh, graven images into the temple uh, in order just not even to, as, to worship, but just as symbols that Rome is here. And the, the priests had to almost give their lives to stop that from happening. And the priesthood was corrupt because they were in league with Rome. And Zechariah is thinking, Lord, we can't serve you without fear. But that's what the Messiah is going to bring. Filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to praise the Lord. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of different things that we think of when we think of that. You know, we think of miracles. We think of, uh, you know, really great preaching. We think of, uh, you know, fearlessness that comes upon us. But one of the most important things is we're filled with praise. To walk in God's power is to be giving God glory all the time. Now, does, worship does not just mean singing, but it certainly does not mean less than singing and rejoicing. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, ties singing and melody and music to being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be full of praise. Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit. Praise. Zechariah, praise. Elizabeth, praise. The early church filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and they spoke with other tongues, declaring the wonderful works of God. I pray that God would make us a spirit-filled church, and by that I mean that we are a praising church, that worship is characteristic of who we are. You know, I, I've led worship for 12 years, and there's a little funny thing that I say sometimes. It's, you know, we don't want to be slow song Christians. You know what a slow song Christian is? A slow song Christian is, you know, I, I used to do this with the high schoolers that usually the younger guys would be worse at this, but, you know, they'd, you know, we're obviously too mature in this room to ever do this, so I'll just talk about them. But, you know, when the songs are, are fast and it's the beginning, it's the first couple songs, you know, they're just kind of looking around, you know, checking their phone, goofing off, doing stuff. But then as soon as we start playing something really like slow and soft and intimate, you know, you know, the hands go up and, you know, they do like the limp wrist thing, you know, and they're on their knees and, you know, it's, that's all good. But it's like, listen, you can't just be a slow song Christian. We're like, this is the most emotional moment. So now I'll engage. Because that can apply to your life where when things are, are, are super emotional and heightened and tough for me, then I come to the Lord. But when things are good and things are fine, then, you know, I'm just kind of here doing whatever. You don't want to be like that. We want to be constantly overflowing with praise to the Lord. So, you know, when we sing together and we worship and, you know, we're, we're all still trying to kind of find that, that 
that core of songs that we all know and can all sing together because it's those early days, which is great. But, you know, eventually we want to get to the place where we're just thinking and meditating on what we're singing and yes, Lord, and we're letting God prepare us for the study, but it's not just being prepared. It's like, Lord, I just want to, you know, remember that old song? I wish I could sing of your love forever, right? I just want to keep on singing and keep on praising. And uh, I pray that the Lord will will stir that up in us and we're gonna continue to give place to that and make it a priority here um, in the coming years. So the first, uh, verse 68 through 75, it's actually one long sentence in Greek. Your Bible might not punctuate it that way, but it's one big run-on sentence. So the Bible endorses run-on sentences. Uh, <laughs> and if that was praise, verse 76 through verse 79, this is gonna be prophecy, okay? He says, verse 76, you child, John will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There are some who think that verse 75 uh, is not really part of the, the song that he was writing. Traditionally it is, but um, at the very least, there's a difference in tone and in an address here, because he's not speaking of the Lord now, he's speaking to John in a prophetic address. So he calls him the prophet who will go before whom? The Lord. This is another one of those uh, oblique references to Jesus' divinity without coming out and just saying it, right? He says, you will, you will go before the Lord. That's pretty amazing because we know that the one that Jesus went before was Jesus himself, okay? Now, when he says that John was preparing God's ways, what does that mean? What does it mean when he says he was preparing the way of the Lord? Well, he was there to awaken repentance in the heart of the people. Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Jesus was coming to proclaim, as he says, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is coming to die on the cross, shed his blood for the remission of sins, and for those who put their trust and their faith in him to save them. John's job was to stir up the conscience of the nation of Israel so that they knew that they needed forgiveness, so that Jesus could come into a people who are primed and ready to hear a message of salvation. That's what John was going to do. And what we're going to learn a lot more about John as we go through this. But he was going to make people aware of the reality of their sin. And unfortunately, we kind of live in the same place where you can't really give people the good news until they realize that there is bad news. You know, you need to be saved. From what? From your sins. I'm not a sinner. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> and it sounds obvious. And it's not hard to get people to that place either, by the way. Like, you know, if you talk to people for a few minutes and say, I'm not a sinner. Well, are you perfect? No. Well, I mean, that's what being a sinner is, right? Well, yeah, I guess so. You know, there are some people who are going to fight with you and scrap with you, but most, you know, reasonable, normal people are, are going to be willing to accept that. And this is what John was doing. John was just the one who was bold enough to stand up and say it, you know, and because this was a time, remember how, how political things were shaking the country that people were probably saying things like, this is not the time for us to be you know, speaking poorly of ourselves. This is the time for us to come together and unite and be proud to be, you know, Israelites. But John's gonna show up and say, you need to repent. And that would prepare the way for Jesus. 
says, uh, by the way, just really quickly, he says that Zechariah prophesies that there will be a light that shines in the darkness. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2 says that uh, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So this is, remember, with John the Baptist, there's a lot of references to the book of Malachi. So you can go check that out. Um, what's important for us to see here, Zechariah and Mary were both hoping for a deliverance from their enemies. And God will deliver Israel from all their enemies. You know, Romans chapter 11 says all Israel will be saved. Revelation 19 talks about the deliverance that Jesus will bring on that day. But God's plan at this time was greater than they were thinking. Now, Jesus did level the plane between rich and poor. Not physically, but he says, you know, spiritually, it's all, we're all saved the same way. That's, a, that's leveling, right? At the foot of the cross, there is neither Jew, Greek, slave, free, rich, poor, whatever it is, right? And one day he will establish that righteous rule on the earth. But the solutions, check this out, the solutions that Jesus brought at his first advent were spiritual, not material. We can be short-sighted like this where everybody was expecting first John and then Jesus to be that great political leader to lead the people to freedom. But both John and Jesus said, listen, the problem here is not Rome. The problem is you. The problem is your heart. And people come to John and they're like, John, what should we do? Tell us what to do, John. And he starts giving them practical righteous instructions. Like, go home and be kind to your family. Don't rip anybody off. Don't abuse anybody. Just go home and, and walk in repentance and obedience before the Lord. We can think that we know, first of all, what the problems are, and second of all, what the solutions are. You look at the country, you look at your family, you look at your city, you look at your job, and you say, I know what the problem is, and I know what the solution needs to be but we don't always know, first of all, what the problem is. A lot of time we're good at identifying symptoms of the problem. Or if we want God, you know, God, you need to judge them. But God's like, I'm showing them patience and I'm showing them mercy because that's what the Lord does. And even if we do correctly identify the problem, we don't always know what the solution is. And here's the deal. <laughs> we're in a, in a time where everybody's getting so frothed up and so divided over everything. You know, it's not just politics, but I feel like everybody's just being pulled to one side or the other. And the tensions are ramped up. People are angry. And, you know, we, we, we want to come in and have solutions. How do we fix this? What do we do? What do we, what's the plan? What's the, the plan of attack? How are we going to fix this? How are we going to bring these people together? What do we need to say? What do we need to do? Where do we need to go? What meetings do we need to have? You know, people are, you know, millennials are leaving the church. How do we, how do we solve this? What do we do? You know, what do we, how do we change the church? How do we do this or that? You know, there's racial tensions in the country. Same thing, right? How do we fix this? How do we, how do we solve it? Why don't they get better? Why don't we get better? Why doesn't this? Jesus came to a time that was no less divided than ours. Perhaps it was probably worse. And Jesus shows up and frustrated everyone. <laughs> Jesus, you know, it's funny because I remember how I said everybody tries to claim Jesus. You know, uh, a lot of people want to say, well, Jesus was the champion of the downtrodden. Yes, he was. But then people want to take Jesus and roll him into their political solution, right? Therefore, we need to get rid of the structure and bring down the government and get rid of the... Jesus didn't do that either. Jesus healed the centurion's son. Jesus healed the, the woman who was unclean. Jesus healed the synagogue ruler's kid. Jesus went out and called a tax collector to be his, uh, to be his follower. Remember how mad everybody got when Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house? 
He's a tax collector, Lord. No, they're the bad guys. You're supposed to be on our team, on our side. And Jesus is like, I'm not interested in that. Salvation has come to this house today. Jesus came bringing spiritual solutions to material problems. And it's the same way today. The only thing that is gonna change anything is the gospel. The only thing that is gonna change anybody's hearts is the gospel. We're not, you know, we're not gonna somehow come to a solution that's gonna make everybody happy. What's gonna happen is Christians are gonna be proclaiming the good news and lives are gonna begin to be changed. You know, Jesus just, he told Zacchaeus, go home and make right everything that you've done wrong and stop doing those wrong things. You're forgiven. That's what Jesus does. That's what changes people's hearts. And there's real pressure upon me as a pastor and us as a church that we've gotta be like, you know, engaged with all the different stuff that's going on. And there is a place for some of that, but today we're, we're talking about what has to come first. We as a church need to be seeking the Lord in prayer in worship, to be studying the word, to be fellowshipping with one another, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you know what the church is? The church is like those underground guerrilla soldiers that God sends in. The battle's going on over here. Everybody thinks the battle's up here. The Lord sends us in down here, and we start changing hearts and changing lives. And we're praying, we're interceding on a spiritual level for things. We're making the name of God great. We're, you know, and where people start looking for answers, we're there to give them the message of Jesus Christ. And when people are so angry and so demanding justice, we come out and say, you know what? You're right, we do deserve justice, but you know what? It's worse than you think because the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news, God's brought mercy. You know. We need to have that heavenly mindset because what's the Holy Spirit doing here? He's taking their eyes off of the world and pointing them up to the Lord. We as a church need to just be doing those simple, plain, old-fashioned things that always, somebody always seems to be saying that they're outdated, you know? <laughs> that you're, you're backwards or you're ignorant or the gospel is somehow insufficient or we, it's not enough just to show up to church and pray and share the gospel anymore. Now we've got, no, 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 no. People have said that in every single generation since the time of Jesus Christ. But we give ourselves to the word, to prayer, to worship. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You could even point this out too, that any great social change that's been ha that has happened, that has been good, has, has happened because of faithful Christians who slowly, quietly, and in the background obediently served the Lord, and then finally the Lord would raise up one person like a William Wilberforce or Martin Luther King Jr. or whoever to actualize that change. And then the world looks at it like, see what we did? It's like, that's not what we did. This is what the Lord did. We've been praying for this for generations and teaching this in the churches and evangelizing and sharing the gospel and seeing lives changed. In the book of Exodus, people of Israel left the land of Egypt. After 10 plagues, Pharaoh said, get out, right? I don't want you here anymore. Then they realize, okay, who's gonna clean all this mess up? And Pharaoh gets angry and he charges out after the Jews, after the Israelites, and they charge down after them and they pin them between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And the people say to Moses, why did you bring us out here? Look at this. We've got to go back. We've got to go back on our hands and knees and maybe they'll spare us. Let's kill Moses and say, look, we killed him. We're very sorry. 
Take us back, because where are we supposed to go? And Moses is like, verse, Exodus 14, verses 13 through 14. Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Here comes the Pharaoh's armies. The pillar of fire comes and blocks their way and doesn't let them come. Then the Lord sends a strong wind that blows all night long and the waters part and they go across the waters and then the Egyptians chase them into the waters. You know the story, they get to the other side and then God closes up the sea and completely obliterates Pharaoh's army. 600 chosen men wiped out on that day. The solution to the problem was to wait on the Lord and to let the Lord's salvation come through. So listen, here, Calvary Chapel Trustville, we are going to wait on the Lord. We are never going to try and build anything for ourselves, never. Because if we build it, we've gotta maintain it. And if we build it, it's only as big as us. If we take it to the Lord and trust upon God to be faithful to his word, faithful to his people when they pray, faithful to us when we fellowship and strive to walk in righteousness together, then we are, we're doing what the Lord has asked and the Lord will be faithful to us. Every generation thinks that their problems have outgrown God's power, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna devote ourselves to the Lord and we're gonna wait for his deliverance. This is why we teach through the, the Bible verse by verse, by the way. You hit the, the relevant things as you go through them, but it's like we recognize that it's more important for us to know the word and to be disciplined in our study of the Bible, disciplined in our worship, disciplined in our prayer, because then we're ready for anything. And in verse 80, the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John grew up, John matured. Doubtless, he would have been a young orphan. His parents were old. And it seems that he rejected the priesthood too. He didn't train to become a priest. Maybe he saw the corruption and didn't want anything to do with it. Instead, he went out into the desert to be prepared by the Holy Spirit. And we're not gonna see him again until he comes out of the desert in chapter three. And I love this. This is a story just continually builds up the anticipation that something is stirring in the land of Israel. And the Spirit keeps on turning our eyes up to praise the Lord. This is why we give ourselves to worship, to prayer, to the word, so that we're able to know God's will, to be able to recognize when something's going on. We're gonna read in a few weeks about Anna and Simeon in the temple who were faithfully waiting for the Messiah and they didn't miss it. Everybody else was distracted and they missed it. But we give ourselves to worship, to prayer, to word and to fellowship. Have faith that God's ways are better. God's ways and God's solutions are better than ours. You know, they, they looked at their land, the only solution is to rebel and overthrow these people. God's like, here's my solution. I'm gonna have two little babies be born way out in the boondocks where nobody will know them there. That's my solution. Because Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I had a professor that used to say this. Great, great man of God. He's a pastor now. He's not doing a professor anymore. But he used to ask this. How many of you believe that God can do things better than you can? How about bigger than you can? How about faster than you can? How about longer lasting than you can? Bigger, better, faster, and longer lasting. So his whole point then would be, 
So you need to pray and seek the Lord rather than expending all your energy and running after building some great thing. Seek the Lord and trust that the Lord will build it because the Lord can do it bigger, better, faster, and longer lasting than you can. So we're gonna seek the Lord. We're gonna seek his ways and we're gonna let our mouths be filled with praise.